40 days in the wilderness. 40 days without food. I'm hungry after 40 hours. Maybe four hours. I'm hungry after 40 hours. Here is a story of Jesus being tested, tempted by the devil on the way into his public ministry. We know that he's been baptized. We know that his identity as child of God has been confirmed by the dove descending upon him and God speaking, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And we also know, because Luke, Matthew, and Mark tell us that something else then happens, something to push him, something that takes him into a wilderness moment, into a, an examination of who he is. A few weeks ago, Ruby Sales and I began a conversation about what does it mean for Jesus to go to the wilderness and what does it have to say to us as we mark this anniversary of the birth of Dr. King and as we think about our own movements. I think it's really interesting that uh, Rembrandt has a sketch of Jesus and the devil, depicting Jesus and the devil in the wilderness. And the devil doesn't look beautiful, but he doesn't look scary. A little skeletal, his wings are there, and he's kind of walking just behind Jesus with his wing over the shoulder, like they're having a kind of confidential chat about what it means to be tempted. It looks, that sketch, like this is not an ominous moment, but the word for temptation in the Greek is actually paraiso, and it means something like malevolence, you know? It's not a light thing at all. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, and I don't mean to be funny, but it's kind of funny to me that a female rabbi says her people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because the men refused to ask for directions. I just think that's important to say. I know, but clearly, Jesus is being tested like his people were tested. And I think the test is about identity. I think we all go through wilderness experiences and those are designed to not, not only confirm who we are, but make us who we are. Does that make sense? Not only to confirm who we are, but to make us who we are. And so here is Jesus, and you heard Cheryl read so beautifully the three kinds of tests. He's hungry, take these stones, turn it into bread. Uh, l l let me take you up uh, uh, on a pinnacle and show you all of the power you can have for yourself. Throw yourself down and, and, and see if God will protect you. But I want to talk a little bit then about um, wilderness wisdom. Wisdom, I think, that comes from this story about Jesus and about King's life. Particularly in King's wonderful seminal work, where do we go from here? I'm going to say that there are three lessons from the wilderness. A typical Presbyterian three-point sermon, my friends. That hardly ever happens here. But I think the first lesson is to decolonize our minds. To decolonize our minds. If I'm going to make that point, I have to remind us of who Jesus is. Yes, he is the Son of God. Yes, he's God's beloved. But he's also a human. And that human is a person of African Semitic origins. That human is a brown-skinned Jewish-Palestinian man living in a time of occupation. That human is on the bottom rung of society. That human surely has been the, the, the recipient of derision and prejudice and, and castigation, right? 
that human has been demeaned and derailed of his, human, his, his sense of humanity. His mind, please don't think I'm sacrilegious, couldn't help but be acculturated by Roman Empire. His mind, please don't think me sacrilegious. No divinity inside Christ who would have protected him from what the world was telling him about him. His mind, his heart, had to have a little bit of low self-esteem, a little bit of sense of internalizing the racism and the anti-Semitism. Come on, a little bit of Jesus' humanity had to be scarred by the empire around him. He was hungry, not just from having fasted for 40 days, but he was hungry for something about the self, hungry for something about pride, hungry, for something about salvation that didn't mean going to heaven, but being saved right then and there from the empired culture. And the devil says, well, turn this stone into bread. And I think Jesus knew that that wasn't really what he really hungered for. What he really hungered for was redemption, was a fixing of systems. We have to, in order to get fed by what we really need, decolonize our minds. Amen? Amen. Dr. King said it this way. He called it cultural homicide, what the Negro in America was living with in the time of the Southern Freedom Movement. Ruby says, don't call it a civil rights movement. Call it a Southern Freedom Movement. Say that with me. A Southern Freedom Movement. The Negro, the so-called Negro in America, was hungry then for what Jesus hungered for in his time. Recognition. A chance to just rise up and stand on your own two feet to straighten up your back and be unburdened by oppression. Dr. King says the Negro must rise up with an affirmation of his, he said, sick, their own Olympian womanhood, manhood. And he said, any movement for the Negro's freedom that overlooks this necessity is only waiting to be buried. That as long as the mind is enslaved, I'm saying colonized, the body can never be free. No emancipation proclamation, no civil rights bill would make the black person free until we, they, us reach down inside our own selves and write for ourselves that we are liberated. Write for ourselves what it means to be the children of God in this barren land. Now, what does that look like today? I don't know. After decades of black is beautiful. And did you know that Dr. King was the one who put that on the map? I mean, we give Jesse Jackson the kind of credit for uh, I am somebody, right? Say it again, I am somebody. But that's right here in King's letter, right here in this address, right here in this speech. I am somebody. I am a person. I am a person with dignity and honor. So after decades of black is beautiful and our fists raised and claiming our Afros and our naturalness, today still, the minds of black and brown children, I want to focus especially on black children because I'm black and I'm just gonna. Black racism is the deal here in America. All other deals come from it. Somebody say amen. The black mind, the black and brown children vulnerable to colonization. What does that look like now? I, I don't mean to pick on anybody's hairstyles but it kind of breaks my heart 
to see all the little black girls with those lace wigs and the kind of natural looking parts with some Asian woman's hair cut off, shorn and wrapping around their body and they're flipping and shaking and some of it's dyed blonde and it's, do you understand what I'm trying to say? You don't like your natural hair, that's a colonized mind. You're not beautiful unless your hair is flowing and shiny and you can shake it in the wind. That's your colonized mind. Still, we sell Nat Nola lightning creams. Still, black children put on makeup that's too light for their faces. Still, for my mother, it was Dixie Peach. Now it's, I don't know, Revzon, Revlon but all of the ways that we are still signaled by the American media that we are not good enough, beautiful enough, and our black, shiny deliciousness. Our boys are taught they're nothing unless they can shoot hoops or exercise their hyper-masculinity on the basketball court, on the corner, and in the classroom. Our music, calls girls things I won't say from the pulpit, but they're sex objects and they're only good if their booties are popping and shaking. What kind of madness is this? We have to decolonize our minds in order to write our own text for what it means to be free. Somebody say amen. amen. And if you want to say to yourself, well, that's good, Jackie, that's a black people project. I'm here to tell you, no, it's not. Every single one of us who consume media Every single one of us who listen to music, every single one of us who retweet images and stories of things that make black look like it is not amazing and badass and fabulous, we are responsible for the ongoing colonization of the black mind. A recent study at the Science Direct uh, moved from, like Dr. King talked about how many synonyms for blackness are negative and der derogatory. You'll notice I, I, I'm hardly ever, I'm, shoot, Bertram, I'm loath to talk about black and dark in, in the kind of biblical sense, always looking for a way to lift it up because yo soy black and I don't like it being a negative term. But even today, research shows that people who hear the word black versus African-American uh, ascribe more negativity to black than to African-American. Black, you're probably a criminal. Black, you're probably poor. Black, you're probably stupid. Black, you probably did that crime. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? If your name is Shaniqua Johnson and you put it on your resume, you might not get that job, sight unseen, because it sounds black. We've got to decolonize our minds. Amen, middle family? And black folks are not the only one with colonized minds. Have you seen the social media of this silly white boy in his Make America Great Again hat taunting an indigenous American elder? Are you kidding me? with all those little white friends watching on and cheering on, that's a colonized mind. When the president holds government workers hostage in order to get, build a wall against the people to whom this land belongs, that's a colonized mind. If we don't understand that we live on stolen land, built 
houses built, institutions built on the backs of stolen people, all of our minds are colonized. And we have to get free. That's our shared responsibility. Lesson one, Jesus out in the wilderness, hungry for some bread. He himself, an indigenous, oppressed person, needed to go to the wilderness, have that experience to get his mind decolonized so he could do his work. Number two, we have to come to understand what true power is. Devil to Jesus, worship me and have this power. Jesus to devil, worship God and only him. In other words, the only true power that we have in which to live our lives is power that is found in the Holy One, power that is found in God, power that is found in love. Dr. King said it this way, power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. Can I say that again? Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands, uh, excuse me, justice standing against love. Do y'all got that? Do I do that again? I feel like I'm sleepy and I'm a little tripped up there. <laughs> Power at its best implements the demands of justice. And justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. I'm saying love must correct poverty. I'm saying love must correct sexism. I'm saying love must correct anti-Semitism. I'm saying love must correct xenophobia. And love must correct Christian hegemony, which acts like Christianity is the all, end all, be all, white supremacist religion of the world that will heal us. Can I tell you that I'm, I'm emotional today and can hardly speak because I've gotten so much hate mail since yesterday? Just because I'm not really a Christian. And I'm not really a Christian because I think that there's more than one path to God. And I'm not really a Christian because I think love is the only way to God. In fact, I'll say it now for the haters, I think Jesus Christ is only a portal to love and only a portal to God. Jesus Christ is not the, the thing God called us to worship, Christian family. Jesus Christ is the, the one that God sent into the world to teach us what it means to be fully human and fully divine. Jesus Christ is the one who taught us how to love so we would know how to love. And when we put Christianity on the altar ahead of our God, I think we are making a mistake. Love is God's power at work in the world. Can we imagine that God is so puny, God is so unimaginative, that the only way we can get to love is through the Christ? Worse, do we think that God would grow, would make a baby, grow a baby, send a baby, so God could torture the baby and crucify the baby, so we could get to God through the blood of the baby? Come on, people. That's the old story that we think binds us to some kind of first place in line to our God. That, there is a, that there's a holy loving one who can't abide 
us walking toward each other in peace and love, but instead requires violence in order to get saved. Pure power, true power, love power has got to reframe even our Christian narrative. Because if we think God wants us to torture each other in the name of love, convert each other through violence in the name of love, we've missed the boat. We've missed the boat. Real power harnesses love to create a movement that acknowledges the human dignity of every person on the planet. The little girl in China that will never hear Jesus preached. Is she not a child of God? The Muslim boy kidnapped by Boko Haram and taught to do violence to girls. Is he not a child of God? Do we imagine that our God is so puny and stingy that we can't find our way to hope together. Let's talk about love. We've got to talk about real power. And that's the lesson from the wilderness that Dr. King had. That's the lesson from, from Jesus. Power is love enfleshed. Amen? And I think finally, our third uh, lesson uh, uh, from the wilderness is about dismantling systems of oppression. And that has to start from the inside out. And I, I know this is going to sound like point one. I'm sure it probably does to you. But in my mind, to, to uh, decolonize my mind is one project. But the next project is to build a new me based on hope and liberty and liberation for all. What, 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 what that project is for me about is uh, something that starts in the womb but ends when we die. It's about study and conversation and listening to, to, to the wisdom of our elders. It's about being willing to lay down our fears and, and, to, and to be vulnerable and to be changed and transformed because we, because we stop shoring ourselves up with, with old ideas and concepts and instead let go of binaries like male and female. Let go of binaries like black and white. And let go of binaries like Jew and Christian. In other words, there's something about dissolving the old and allowing ourselves to reconstruct a new human order. And that's a scary project. That's why, that's why Women's March fell apart. Kind of, not really. <laughs> because we like the comfort of the old systems. We like the, the kind of confidence we get from thinking about who's in and who's out. We like the, the satisfaction we get for knowing that we can fully vet all the people who are in relationship to the people we're in relationship, and that'll make us feel comfortable and safe. That's BS. I can't fully vet my friend Sharon Browse's relationships with her rabbis in Israel and their relationship with their rabbis in Germany. I don't have time for that. It's not possible to do that. It's ridiculous to think that. We have to dismantle the sense of putting each other in a box and that the box is going to make us safe. The only thing the box is going to do is keep us in prison. And the thing we're in prison to is fear. The thing we're imprisoned to is greed. 
the things we're imprisoned to is prejudice and bias. We've got to dissolve, dismantle these structures that are erected to keep us safe and acknowledge that we're not free until everybody's free. Listening to our choir sing Blackbird, I just dissolved. I'm an emotional creature every day. But I'm in such, my heart is so broken. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. I feel like we've been in the wilderness in America for 400 years. What are we gonna do in the wilderness? How can we together decolonize our minds, our collective mind, our archetypal mind? How can we dismantle the mind that has made America a cesspot of racism and homophobia and antisemitism and xenophobia? How can we together decolonize our minds and raise children who are ready to be free? How can we understand that the true power, the real power, perhaps the only power we have is love? Love correcting everything that stands against love. And how can we dissolve the structures and boxes and alliances and tests that make us feel safe when in fact they just imprison us to a past that for me was not the good old days? I'm inviting us to be seekers in the wilderness, to be allies in the wilderness, to be shaped and honed in the wilderness, so that when we get to the other side, we will find together, create together a promised land of love. This is the human project. It's not a Christian project. It's not a Jewish project or a Muslim project. It's what we're called to do because we are people whose true identity is child of God. Amen. Amen.